I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. tuned in to sci-fi fidelity the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews remember to follow den of geek on twitter and facebook at den of geek us and we are at sci-fi fidelity this is episode 11 for november of 2016 and my name is mike and i'm dave and in this edition of sci-fi fidelity we'll be talking about three different shows that we're enjoying and looking forward to but that might be on the obscure side for some people on the docket are black mirror on netflix Mars on Nat Geo and Dirk Gently on BBC America. Yeah, not exactly the mainstream uh, networks there, but yeah, it'll be fun. And the reason we're doing three, not just because they caught our attention and we want to make sure everyone is aware of them, but also because we have a double interview for Van Helsing this month and we wanted to make sure we left time for them. So we decided to do three shows instead of a discussion topic. And our interview is with Simon Barry, executive producer of Van Helsing, and Kelly Overton, who, of course, is the lead actress on that show. She plays Vanessa Helsing. So very excited to share that with you at the end of the podcast. But yeah, these three shows, uh, let's see, two of them, well, one of them just started. I think they're on episode three this week. That's Dirk Gently. Black Mirror, of course, dropped all at once, as Netflix is wont to do. And Mars on Nat Geo, the National Geographic Channel is not coming out until next week. Right. And I guess everybody these days on cable is getting into the original programming. And (laughs) that's good for us. And of these three shows that you mentioned we're going to be talking about, one has just blown me away. Another, I am really enjoying it a lot. And the third, I think it's just me. <laughs> I think I know which one you mean, but we'll save that for the when the time comes. We'll hold our audience in suspense on that. But uh, I'm about to just skip ahead for the spoiler time codes here. But I do want to mention that the Mars on Nat Geo is going to be fairly spoiler free since it's the one that's coming out next week. So we don't want to spoil anyone on that one. So you don't necessarily have to skip that one. But if you are trying to avoid spoilers on Black Mirror or Dirk Gently, here are the time codes so that you can skip ahead as needed. Black Mirror 253 Mars 2151 Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency 3517 Interview Segment 5030 Alright, and if you're here, you're listening to the Black Mirror segment and Perhaps you've seen seasons one and two, but even if you haven't, the cool thing about Black Mirror is that it's an anthology show, uh, not like American Horror Story where it's self-contained by season, but more like Twilight Zone where it's self-contained by episode, each one telling a different story, but they all have this great theme of 
taking technology, the role of technology in our lives and some of the negative aspects of that and taking it to the nth degree and speculating on what society might be like if these things got really bad and and really uh, dystopian in some ways. Right. And I sort of look at the show's title in that sense. We always look at ourselves in the mirror, a black mirror. We're really not liking what we see. Exactly. It's the darker part of technology. And seasons one and two were so spread out. They, of course, were a production of Great Britain on Channel 4. And each of them only contained three episodes. And that's not atypical of a UK series, but it is rather short. And the weird thing is that season one came out in 2011. And season two didn't come out until... 2013 with another three episodes. So quite spread out, especially considering it was followed up by a Christmas special in 2014. And now we're not getting season three until 2016. So three seasons over the course of five years. Right. And you mentioned not unusual for Great Britain. Certainly that's been the story with Sherlock. Oh, yeah. I mean, we have to wait a long time for those. And part of that for Sherlock is, of course, the longer episodes. But for this one, I think it's the self-contained nature of it. And you're basically producing a movie, even if it's a shorter movie, each time with different cast and and different sets and all that. So it's really kind of cool. And if you're a fan of those types of shows like Twilight Zone, then definitely recommend it. Uh, I just want to go over briefly the episodes that we've seen so far. And then we're going to discuss a little bit of the premiere from season three, which is just one episode of the ones you can enjoy. But in 2011, it started out with a bang with the national anthem. That was the title of the season premiere in which the prime minister's daughter is kidnapped. And then he must perform bestiality with a pig on live streaming video as ransom. And a lot of people thought that's what it was going to be like every single episode. Very shocking. But it did end up being quite different from what people expected. And I think uh, season one blew people away, especially with episode two of season one, one of my favorites, 15 Million Merits, in which people earn money by watching advertisements and reality shows while exercising on these little exercise bikes in prison-like conditions. And they earn credits to use as they want, including getting on to the reality shows that they're watching. And, and you know, as you said, we're going to talk about the first episode of season three in a couple of minutes, but it's one thing I don't understand about how they order their episodes, because I would think you would want your first episode to lay everything out there. This is what we're about. Draw the viewers in. And for me in season one, the first episode, yeah, you, you mentioned came in with a bang. I, I'd say came in with a, I don't know what the heck to say, but the second episode really strong because it, it certainly looks at a lot of social issues that we've been facing for a long time and are only getting worse. Exactly. And in fact, it does have some parallels with the episode we're going to talk about today. But yeah, it was weird that they started with the one with the prime minister and the live streaming video, because that I think may have turned some people off to the show that would have otherwise enjoyed it. So kind of strange, especially 15 million merits was just amazing. And then season one ended with one called the entire history of you. Another great one in which everyone has a little implant called a seed, I think, or a grain, I think is what it was called. It sits behind your ear and records every moment of your life and it allows them to analyze reactions. And I think they call it a do-over to see what 
you said in a particular situation. And because you can do over and, and look at what you said and what someone else said, everyone is constantly rewinding to see what was being said. And, you know, you can find out if someone is having an affair. And that was what was at the root of this particular episode was an affair and then the violence that followed it. A really great way to end that first season and leave you wanting more, but having to wait two years for it. (laughs) But season two, like I said, was in 2013. Began with one of my favorite episodes because of who was in it. Be Right Back, starring Haley Atwell, pre- Agent Carter. I don't think that was pre-Captain America, though. She might have actually had that role by then. I'm not sure. I think you're right. And her husband dies in this episode, and his personality is then reconstructed from his social media profile. You know, there's enough data out there on the internet to put together a personality and implant it into a synthetic body. And boy, does it get strange and very telling from there as you start to realize, you know, what makes a person a person and uh, that was a great way to start season two. Then it went on to White Bear, which was an w- episode in which a woman awakens with no memory at all in a violent world where people are filming her with their cell phones. She doesn't know why, what's going on here. And it turns out she's actually in kind of a prison situation where she's having to relive some bad moments as a form of punishment. And it's a reality show again that allows people to participate in her punishment. And she has flashes of past and present since she keeps reliving this moment over and over again. that was a great one, uh, mainly from the standpoint, it was one of the first ones where we didn't know what was going on until closer to the end, much more Twilight Zone-like than some of the others. And then season two kind of ended with a whimper, unfortunately, the Waldo moment, although it does happen to feel very relevant to the election period that we're going through right now, (laughs) because in the Waldo moment, it was the one where an insult comic puppet who is very popular uh, facetiously, sarcastically runs for office, but then actually gets elected by the people much to the horror of the man behind the puppet. And the puppet becomes like a dictator of the world kind of thing. And as you said, uh, season two was ordered I think perfectly. That That's exactly the way I would order it. I mean, you, you open with Haley Atwell. And, and seriously, I mean, obviously, yeah. we, we're prejudiced because of her Marvel connection with Agent Carter. But still, she's an awesome actress. And the storyline was just something that I think everybody can relate to. Right, exactly. And I think the Christmas special that came a year later was just amazing. Also from who starred in it. And that was John Hamm, who's known for his role in Mad Men had three different stories and it was just amazing. We had people blocking each other where you could uh, actually only see an empty space with static. If you, if you blocked that person from your life, we had uh, people creating consciousness clones to run their households for them. And then the clone would actually still think that it was the real person and kind of a real horrific situation. And John Hamm throughout is listening to these stories as an ongoing uh, participant And then turns out he actually has reason to hear these stories from the storyteller and they kind of have nefarious reasons for it. But it was a little bit longer episode, but what a great Christmas special for those who had to wait like I did for that one to come out. And now, of course, two years later to find that Netflix, which distributed the original Channel 4 series here in America, when Channel 4 stopped producing them, Netflix picked it up. And thank goodness, because now we have not only 
this season three, which is containing six episodes, and which is amazing. When you think about it, that's the same number as has ever been produced, if you don't count the Christmas special. And now we're going to get season three and season four, which is in production currently, another six episodes. So 12 total that we can look forward to. Well, you want to jump ahead to season three? All right. And we're going to talk about Nosedive, which probably if you've seen any of season three of Black Mirror, you know, is not necessarily the best episode of the bunch, <laughs> but it was a very interesting way to start and, and to get back into the series. Right. And just for you guys out there, if you rate this podcast five stars, we'll rate you five stars as well. <laughs> yeah, we'll do the little thumb thing on our cell phone. <laughs> Which I did think was kind of a, a cool twist. But, uh, you know, and it's funny because after I saw this episode, uh, I'm thinking if I never see another pastel, I'll be happy. But then <laughs> I guess the more I thought about it, I kind of liked that. Well, yeah, it kind of is symbolic of the way they were living their lives. Right. And it it also had, of, of course, that 50s feel to it as well, when, when pastel colors and into the early 60s were, were very popular, which set against the modern live your life on the internet. I thought it was a good juxtaposition. Yeah. To include that little detail of fashion changes was also a nice touch. Right. But, you know, this is the show that I guess I have a little bit of a problem with. And I like the episode, don't get me wrong. But I guess I felt for the first episode of the season, it wasn't the right episode to choose. And my biggest problem is that everything takes way too long to develop. And the exposition could have been cut considerably i mean we get it about the whole sliding your thumb over your phone and rating people it it didn't take 15 minutes for me to figure out what was going on but apparently they thought it would take that long so you know at the end of the day we're following this character named lacy and she's certainly not the popular kid right yeah she's someone who aspires to be the popular kid right and she's not so far removed i mean she's attractive but she's not gorgeous in the traditional sense but you know she's attractive but it's as if she's so caught up in everything that she's trying too hard and again it's a an idea we've seen in many different situations the person that tries too hard ultimately fails right and the 4.2 that she has out of five on her overall rating kind of says where she's sitting maybe upper middle class ready to enter the nouveau riche (laughs) as it were because it is kind of a social class situation that these ratings incur and i think if you had to draw a parallel between some of these technologies like the series premiere would be like youtube right sure and this episode would be instagram where you're constantly getting rated based on this supposedly perfect picture you're taking that's supposed to indicate how happy your life is, but you've constructed it. I mean, I think one of my favorite moments that Lacey did in the exposition was when she took a bite out of a smile cookie and then spit it out, arranged it next to her latte and took a picture of it and then tasted the coffee. And it was awful. I mean, basically that picture is the kind of thing people put on Instagram these days. So I think that's very relevant. Well, right. And then also people can rate you based on personal social interactions, right? Yeah, and customer service interactions as well. Right. So, you know, as you mentioned, the episode follows Lacey. She's trying to raise her rating from a 4.2 to a 4.5 so she can get a 20% discount on the rent at an upscale community because I guess that's her brother she's living with. 
Right. Who doesn't seem to care? I like that he's in this episode because he's got like a 3.8 and he's not really concerned about that. He would represent, I think, the conscience of the viewer. And I think I did also pick up on the fact that the exposition was a bit long and his presence was refreshing when he finally told her to stop it, even though she didn't listen to him. Right. And she's bothered by the fact that he doesn't care about his rating. Right. And it's maybe holding her back, which is probably why she wants to move into a place by herself. Right. So what happens is the highly rated childhood friend of Lacey's calls her out of the blue, asks her to be her maid of honor. But since the guest list is made up of all extremely highly rated individuals, Lacey's rating should go up. At least that's the way she perceives things. And given what we know at this point, makes sense. Right. And they did have a childhood together, the highly rated person and and she. But apparently, according to her brother, she wasn't that nice even back then, perhaps even before this technology came about. So the fact that she is using the situation to up her own rating and get some prestige kind of tempers the tragedy that unfolds as this episode progresses where she perhaps blames others for using her but she was doing the same thing she was actually trying to game the system right they're using each other which we really don't find out towards the end of the episode we also pick up another character who's even farther down the scale everything goes wrong on the way to the wedding she misses her flight she can't get a car well actually she does get a a rental car but it's not exactly what she hoped it would be (laughs) it needs an adapter i I could see that actually happening with an electric car (laughs) you have an older car and your refueling cable doesn't fit with the (laughs) charging station uh so good yeah what she finally gets picked up by a female trucker who's only rated a 1.4 and Of course, Lacey's maybe horrified's a bit strong, but she's certainly concerned about this woman's low rating until the woman tells her about her past and the fact that her husband had cancer and that experience dealing with that really turned her life around and caused her to see exactly what she'd been caught up in. And this is a nice little transition point in the episode, too, because it delineates where Lacey is also going to start making that realization that she can free herself by saying what she actually feels and thinks rather than all this fake happiness to get her, her ratings up. Cause no one says how they really feel anymore in this society. Right. And you know, as we said, everything goes wrong that can go wrong for Lacey to get to the wedding. Finally, her friend tells her, you know what? You're down to a 2.6. Don't even bother coming. Right. And she's driven cross country like eight hours. So Lacey's going to be there whether she likes it or not. (laughs) Oh, and and again, this is kind of the highlight of the episode. She borrows an ATV from some random guy, (laughs) goes to the wedding anyway, shows up dirty, disheveled, grabs the mic and starts speaking. And you just want to cringe, but you don't want to cringe because you know she's going to give her friend what she deserves. Well, I actually was hoping for a better speech, a better put her in her place kind of speech. I did like that everyone at the wedding was frozen in place because if they dared do anything, it could affect the opinion of the people who were there as guests. And they were too scared to take a ding. I thought that was great. They had to wait for security to step in. She actually was supposed to give the speech as the maid of honor, of course, and she 
used fragments of her prepared speech about rags and their childhood and all that. But yeah, it was kind of awkward, mainly from the standpoint of she kept meaning to say something to really give it to her and she never really succeeded, which I think is realistic, but also in some sense, a little unsatisfying. Yeah. But it was certainly was fun watching her evade security. Finally, they get her. She's arrested, placed in a jail cell. And I'm a little confused what it was that they did to her eyes. No, they took out the little implant that she used to see people's faces and immediately know what their rating was and what their name was and all that stuff. It was basically in conjunction with the little phone device. So she's lost the technology. She has no phone. She has no eye implant. And there's someone across the way who's apparently in the same situation because he's in a suit, but he's willing to speak his mind as well. So an interesting ending that kind of leaves a question mark in the viewer's mind. Yeah. And I loved the last 20 minutes of this episode. (laughs) I, I thought it was really strong. So again, just going back it's really intriguing. It's really interesting. It's certainly commentary on where we are headed. Some would argue that we're already there. I think if they'd cut out 10 minutes in the first 20, be a much stronger, tighter episode. And that's, of course, the danger of an anthology series like this is that each episode is essentially a pilot because you can't build on what was done in the previous episode. You have to start all over telling the concept So there is that exposition danger. Right. And, you know, maybe it's me that I'm so in tune with a 43-minute episode Uh that when you get a 55, 57-minute, as this is, it's difficult for me to kind of pace myself. Yeah, I can see that. And as I said at the top of the show, it's probably me because everybody I talk to loves this episode. Yeah. And there are others in the season that I think are better. But this was a good one to expose people to. Hopefully people are paying attention to Black Mirror in general, even if you didn't know that it had dropped its third season already. Hopefully this podcast will help you. Like our goal is, is basically to bring attention to science fiction that deserves your attention. So definitely happy to see Black Mirror. It's a huge hit with my family. We're definitely going to be watching season three in its entirety during the winter break when my daughter is home from college break. And that's one of our favorite things. So very much enjoy Black Mirror. But you've got one that we're going to talk about next that kind of snuck up on us. It it had a circuitous route to make it to us. And fortunately, National Geographic was able to get us an advanced screener. Well, first of all, this is Nat Geo Mars. And I'm just blown away by this. I've seen it twice now. And on one level, this is so near and dear to my heart because my father grew up in the space program. I mean, he went to work at NASA from the beginning and had been working for the Army in in what was essentially their space program at that point. I mean, we went out and lived at White Sands Missile Range for a time when I was younger. And so, you know, when I see this, especially the nonfiction aspect, it just gives me chills because so much of this I've experienced Oh, man, that's really putting a personal touch on it. I like that. And I've been obsessed with Mars. I mean, second to time travel, one of my favorite concepts to explore in science fiction, whether it's reading or television or movies, is Mars. And, of course, I loved The Martian. I loved The Expanse, which has Martian elements to it. I loved the 
Mars series by Kim Stanley Robinson, the trilogy. So this was right up my alley. And like you said, the nonfiction element added such an accessibility to the concept. Well, you know, I wonder about that, though, because on the one hand, I think for viewers like you and me, the fact that the nonfiction is interspersed with the fiction is going to be a huge draw. But I think for some people, uh, I don't want to watch a documentary. I didn't want to watch the science, you know, so that I wonder who their viewer is really going to be. Well, I think because it's presented as though the 2016 elements were precursors, like prehistory to the 2033 material, it's presented almost as though it's part of the story. And I think it does work integrated together. It doesn't feel like you're being removed and then doing interviews, you know? Right. So what they're doing is they're combining the real science and technology of 2016, projecting it forward to 2033, which we then see through the eyes of the Daedalus crew as it embarks on the first manned mission to Mars. And I love that opening sequence voiceover. We dream. It's who we are. And it just even now, it just sends chills up and down my spine because as they present the whole reason for going to Mars, it makes perfect sense. And it's almost frightening that we really never looked at it in these terms. In other words, helping the human race avoid extinction. Right. If you accept the fact that there may be a extinction level event that could be something like a meteor striking Earth or something like that, you need to have humans spread out. And I think the fact that this is a real goal for Elon Musk, who has obviously made his money through PayPal and through um, Tesla and everything else, but he has his SpaceX corporation, which has as its mission, its primary mission, to get a colony on Mars. I mean, that is just science fiction stuff in reality. Right. Because as you said, it's that move to being a multi-planetary species that, as I believe he says, that once we do that, the probability that the human race goes extinct drops significantly to almost zero. Right. And I think that's a valid reason to put things into motion, even if it takes decades, centuries even, to reach the goal. But he's saying that it could happen as early as 2033, which is just amazing. (laughs) Right. But what's so amazing as well is the fact that this is not something that we've really been talking about. Look, I'm sure there are people that have been talking about it, but not necessarily in the mainstream of science fiction. Exactly. The fact that it's a possible reality. It's not just a pipe dream. Right. So we've got to build a self-sustaining city on Mars, a home for humankind, And how we go about that is laid out in certainly the nonfiction aspect of the series, which is basically we've got to send stuff there first, assemble a place to live, and then we send the people. Right. And I think because Dave and I have only seen the first episode and it comes out on November 14th, so it's definitely got uh, more to build on. And I think there's six episodes. Is that correct, Dave? I believe so. So there's going to be, it's a six episode miniseries. And the first one presents two problems. One is that you have to have that base camp and you have to reach the base camp. And number two, because there's so little atmosphere on Mars, you can't just land on it like you can on the moon with a lander. You've got to fire some retro rockets and land a rocket with the uh, jet propulsion (laughs) capabilities that it has because the 
atmosphere is not enough to slow you down. Right. And, and as is made perfectly clear in the episode that, that one of the key tasks that SpaceX has is to develop a reusable rocket. And I love the analogy that, that Elon Musk brings up that had sailing ships not been reusable, America probably would have never been discovered. <laughs> or Yeah, exactly, by the Europeans. So, yeah, it's a very interesting analogy and some very problematic hurdles to overcome. And these are real hurdles that they're trying to overcome. I like that they showed one of the reusable rockets on Earth being tested and failing. It did not land correctly. So it sort of tells you where we're at right now and the real problems that the fictional crew faces when it actually carries through the mission. Right. But then when you go back to the history of the United States space program, they had a lot of those kinds of problems as well. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't we take a look at the crew of the Daedalus? We've got Ben Sawyer, who's from the United States. He is the mission commander, played by Ben Cotton, who some of you that watched Blood and Chrome might know. And then, of course, The Killing, which Michael and I did a podcast about. Good old Pastor Mike. Yeah. Blood and Chrome, it was the Battlestar Galactica web series. Right. Now, we've got a pair of United States twins, Hannah and June Seung. Uh, Hannah is a pilot and an engineer who is on Daedalus, and then her twin sister is in mission control. She's the Capcom. Ca- yeah, the capsule commander. And what was interesting, I discovered just last night as we were preparing for the podcast, there's a, like a 30-minute webisode that follows Hannah, I guess it's pronounced Hannah, and June as children and growing up as Korean Americans and being shunned from the cafeteria for having their smelly kimchi lunches and things like that. So if you want to check out the webisode, that's available now, even before the premiere, so that you can meet the twins. Oh, cool. All right. From Spain, we have Javier Delgado, who's a hydrologist and a chemist. Amelie Durand from France, physician, biochemist. Robert Foucault from Nigeria, mechanical engineer, robot operator. It's like, it was almost as if he was having fun playing a video game, except that it was a video game for life or death consequences. <laughs> That's right. And then finally, Marta came in from Russia, geologist, exobiologist. And the first episode does a wonderful job of interspersing 2016 nonfiction, where we are now, where we're headed with then the fictional crew of the Daedalus, and and certainly there are conflicts that come up. I, I thought they just ended it in a perfect place. Oh, yeah, because they built it up as kind of a concept and skipped over the seven-month journey from Earth to Mars and went right to the landing. So it was very interesting that we saw that it was an international crew. We didn't get a ton of the dynamics of the crew. They seemed to all get along pretty well and, and know their jobs and, and things like that. But we didn't meet them too in depth, but just got an introduction to them and went right into the crisis. <laughs> right. And we're also introduced to, we should have probably brought this up earlier, the International Mars Science Foundation, IMSF. It's kind of like the international version of NASA, I guess. Right. So you mentioned the fact that they 
ignore the 209-day journey from Earth to Mars. And I certainly think the reason they did that is because it was a lot of doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and everything probably worked exactly as it was supposed to work. But then once they get to Mars and, and we learn the science behind landing on Mars, because Mars has such a thin atmosphere that you really have to slow the vehicle down considerably. And in this case, they need to fire retro rockets. And they, of course, have a problem. One of the retro rockets is not online. And the crisis that ensues is all predicated on that because, you know, it basically has consequences that come from it besides just replacing the control board so the retro rocket can fire. So what we're going to see here, I think, as the series progresses is one small error after another, nothing big, but because every small error has such big consequences, we have to see how it plays out and how they solve the problem of surviving on another planet. Right. And then, of course, there's the time delay with communications to Earth. It's not tremendous, but it is there. Yeah, they can't help from Earth. They can't give them advice. In fact, I think The ground control even says, we know the solution to the control board issue, but we can't tell them (laughs) because by the time our message gets there, they will either have succeeded or failed. Right. And then the other thing that we see, and and I would certainly assume we're going to see it as we move forward in this series, is the emotional impact of what this is going to do to them, because it's certainly something they trained for. But as I'm sure everybody can imagine, training for something and then actually living it, two totally different things. Exactly right. And because you still have the mission control element, I liken this very much to the movie Apollo 13, where they had to get creative with different things that they had available to them in order to solve a problem or survive. And of course, The Martian is similar to that, the movie with Matt Damon, but It really reminded me of Apollo 13 more from the standpoint of there is, hopefully, I don't don't really know the answer here, but hopefully there is still going to be communication between Earth and Mars, which was not present in The Martian. Right. And then I, I guess the last thing I just want to bring up, we always talk with science fiction about production values. I don't know that they could be any higher. Yeah, surprisingly so from a such a minor network, right? Yeah, just wonderful. They want to be able to bring the concept to the people, not just as a documentary. They want to tell a story because that's what's going to get people engaged in the idea. And perhaps it could be considered a bit of a commercial for SpaceX. I mean, it's not overt, but do you think it's kind of a PR move to even have this production being done? Because it's produced by Brian Grazer and Ron Howard, which, you know, you can't get any bigger than that in terms of Hollywood credibility. But Elon Musk must have his hand in there somewhere, right? Well, I would think so. And, you know, that's a kind of an intriguing question, especially for me, again, given my background, because I certainly had many conversations with my dad about support for the space program. And and certainly that was at a time when it was simply funded by the U.S. government. But now with costs just some would argue, spiraling completely out of control, you almost have to bring the private sector into it if you want to do things like put a man on Mars. 
Exactly. It can't just be the government. It has to be a cooperation between countries, international countries, as well as corporations. So, and I think that's been stated, not just with this Mars mission, but for the future of the space program in general. Right. So if you say, is this a commercial for SpaceX? If it is, I'm fine with it. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> because I think it's something that we have to do. And, and again, I think that's one of the most powerful aspects of this episode is that it really does drive home that point about the importance of getting off Earth. Yes, having another place, another home for the human race. Right. So I don't know that there is a, a segue that could be made <laughs> from Mars into our next show. So we'll just go straight into it because it couldn't be more different. On BBC America, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, starring Sam Barnett and Elijah Wood. Now, Dirk Gently is an interesting concept. And I say concept because this is a book written by Douglas Adams, who, of course, is best known for his Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. But lesser known is his two novels with the character Dirk Gently. There was Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency in 1987, and then there was The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul in 1988. And this story has been adapted to television before. And yet, both this series and the one produced in 2012, there were only four episodes of the first Dirk Gently adaptation, but neither one of them actually follows the plot of the book. They just take this idea of Dirk Gently and the holistic detective, which believes in the interconnectedness of all things. To heck with clues, to heck with detective work. We're just going to follow the coincidental connections that happen in a case in order to see the bigger pattern and figure out the solution from there. I mean, a really cool concept for a detective show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And so that's what they've done here. Right. Now, of course, I've read the Hitchhiker novels by Douglas Adams, but I, I really didn't even know about the Dirk Gently novels. There actually was a third he was working on, and I think somehow they finished it to less than enthusiastic reviews. But as I told you uh, maybe a week or so ago, I DVR'd the episode, and I happened to be watching it live. I came in maybe 10 minutes in, and I said to you the next day, because I only watched about 10 minutes, I'm not sure how this is science fiction. Should we really be doing this? <laughs> well, once you watch the episode, no, forget it. it. It's definitely science fiction with a light touch. And with a little bit of maybe fantasy or supernatural thrown in there, perhaps. 
But clearly, the interconnectedness of all things is not just a concept that helps the detective solve cases with no clues. It also indicates that there's something bigger than what we normal humans see that's steering things. The universe has a way of bringing things together that it wants to bring together, including Dirk Gently and his new assistant, Todd, a very reluctant assistant, where Dirk Gently comes across him because of his investigation and realizes that Todd has been placed in his path specifically to become his assistant. And the comedy that ensues, and this is what's interesting. We talked about in a previous podcast, do science fiction and comedy go together? And I think here it's brilliantly juxtaposed. Right. We see a gruesome murder scene in the opening sequence, but there are some noticeable indicators that there are paranormal implications i mean the bloody handprints on the floor the burn holes the bite marks on the ceiling yeah (laughs) and then of course some may say the obligatory black kitten yeah black kitten walking through the scene that's an interesting tie-in too because the black kitten is picked up by dirk gently we don't see that at the time but later on the episode he pulls the black kitten out of a duffel bag and these mysterious bald men with symbols tattooed on their necks are seeking this black kitten and those mysterious bald men appear in a couple different plot lines. So there certainly are some very strange details that are shared throughout the episode that do cross over between some of the strange occurrences that haven't been tied together yet in this premiere episode, but you can clearly see that they're all meant to be part of the grand mystery. And it certainly is a very strange and hard to follow mystery, but you want to solve the puzzle. You want to see it come together. Right. And one of the aspects that makes it somewhat confusing is the fluidity of time. Timey-wimey, if you will. (laughs) Yeah. And that's dropped in there so briefly. And of course, it's a big part of the novel, time travel is. So you know that you have to put that in there somewhere in order to be true to the source material. But yeah, Todd, who has a job as a bellhop and is sent up to the penthouse where the crime scene is to see what's going on because they haven't heard from anyone in the penthouse for a while. The elevator stops on the 18th floor and Todd sees himself. And I looked at this a second time. He's clearly talking to Dirk gently. I think he's wearing a blue jacket instead of a yellow jacket, but it's basically the same style of jacket. So we're going to see that scene probably in a future episode in reverse. And of course this is the third episode is already coming out this week. And Dave and I have only seen the premiere episode, but That's definitely going to happen, don't you think? (laughs) I would certainly think so. And, you know, the reason Dirk Gently gets involved is because uh, this young girl, Lydia Spring, is missing. And and apparently she had a fight with her father. And less than one week later, he's dead. And he's in the penthouse. He's the dead body in the penthouse. Exactly. And the other thing that, you, you know, as you were explaining about Dirk Gently's theory on everything being interconnected. The other thing that I love so much is that Elijah Wood's character, Todd, as you implied, wants nothing to do with Dirk Gently, but his life has just been turned upside down and he really has absolutely no choice but to work with Dirk Gently. Right. Towards the end of the episode, it all becomes clear when Dirk Gently basically says, the universe will make you a part of this whether you are complicit or not. (laughs) And of course, the fact that this lottery ticket that he picks up at the crime scene ends up being a winner. And who didn't see that coming, honestly? (laughs) Yeah, I just thought it would be for more money. 
Yeah, it's 10,000, right? But because he's in such dire financial straits, he's lost his job. He can't pay his rent. I mean, the opening scene when we meet Todd is him running from his crazy uh, landlord played by Ty Olson. Loved seeing him in this role. <laughs> and uh, obviously he's got a sister who is very sick, has a disease that runs in their family that Todd himself had at one point. And he needs to pay for her medication. Their parents are broke. He's down on his luck. And this mission is going to be all he has, whether he wants to work with Dirk or not. And of course, we don't really know if he ever will be a willing participant, but at least he'll be taken care of, uh, starting with the 10000 he wins from the lottery. <laughs> right. But even before that, as you said, I mean, he is literally penniless because we see and Dirk sees that he gives his last dollar to his sister. Yeah. A great character to add here to have the sister involved. I mean, this is a completely fictional disease she has where she hallucinates very painful things and thinks that they're real. So she can't even exit her house without feeling like she might get knocked over by a breeze because she'll feel like it's a hurricane. So an interesting thing to throw into the mix, this very horrific idea of a, of a disease. All right. Speaking of things thrown into the mix, what's the deal with the Corgi? Yeah, the Corgi, an interesting little ingredient that I think what that led to, and, and it wasn't until the second time I watched it that I noticed it. Todd does decide to pick up the Corgi once he sees it for the third time out the bus window and looks at the address on the on the collar and takes it to that person who is a guy played by Aaron Douglas from Battlestar Galactica. Great to see him too, which made me almost miss the fact that I think in the background was that Lydia that was in his home acting all insectoid. I think it may have been the missing girl. So I think that was an interesting detail to just kind of drop in with absolutely no mention. And he wouldn't have even discovered that had he not seen the Corgi. And the Corgi was even at the crime scene walking through the hotel lobby, you know? Right. So, you know, obviously you and I, over the course of the past four and a half years of, of podcasting together, we've talked about time travel quite a bit. So clearly we've got more than one timeline going on here. How that exactly plays out in terms of time travel rules we don't really know yet right and how much of it is that kind of thing where he's they're doubling back on themselves and how much of it is just the universe conspiring to bring these different elements together because we've got a lot of other ingredients too including a woman named farah who's locked up in the apartment above todd's who has something to do with Lydia. She seems to say something like, you know, I'm coming for you, Lydia. I'm coming for you. Like she's her protector and a stray bullet goes through the ceiling and kills whoever kidnapped her. Her storyline is completely separate from the main storyline. And yet, you know, it's going to come together. And that's just one example of one of the disparate plot lines that are happening in this premiere. Right. And I don't think we really learn how it is that Dirk, thinks Todd is connected, do we? Or did I just miss that? No, I think he was just coming in through the window and seeing the strange occurrences that are happening around him and deducing that this is an assistant. It's like he recognizes what the universe is up to. And that's part of what makes him a holistic detective. And that's kind of a nice way to introduce the holistic assassin, the opposite of Dirk Gently, if you will, a great character called Bart Curlish, this gravelly voiced female who's just kind of disheveled and bloody 
where she uses the same concept, the same methods that Dirk uses to find her victims rather than to solve crimes. And so there's a whole subplot going on with her where she runs into this hacker for hire named Ken, played by Mpo Kawaho of Falling Skies. He plays Anthony on that show. I don't know if you recognized him. I didn't. It was great to see him in there. And so he is, like Todd, pulled along for the ride with the holistic assassin who mistook him for Dirk Gently. So I think this was another conspiring of the universe to bring her together with her assistant. (laughs) Well, right. And then we get into this sequence where we've got these two military guys that are staking out Dirk, Colonel Riggins and Sergeant Friedkin. And then we've got the police detectives that are watching. You know, it's like this person's watching that person who's watching this person who's watching that person. (laughs) And it's just a mess, but it works. Yeah, I think even the FBI gets in on the mix because they're watching the landlord, Dorian. So, And they have all got such great personalities. I think you and I were drawn the most to the military, old guy and the young guy, because the young guy is always looking through his sniper scope to stake out, even though there is no need to kill anyone. And I think it's actually his bullet that takes out Farrah Black's abductor. So. <laughs> well, well, right. And that's some of the funniest. Di- I mean, there's a lot of snappy dialogue so that if a podcaster needs a little snappy wordplay at the beginning of his or her podcast, <laughs> there's plenty here. But as you said, a lot of the, the humor here is, do you want me to take the shot? No, don't take the shot. We're not trying. I've got a shot. No. <laughs> Taking the shot. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, and the Seattle cops are no slouches either. I mean, Estevez and Zimmerfeld from the, uh, <laughs> from the Seattle Police Department, because this does take place in Seattle. Zimmerfield is played by Richard Schiff of the West Wing, which that was a shocking person to see in this <laughs> cast. Uh, it's kind of interesting. And they have a nice dynamic as well. And they are sure that Todd has something to do with the murder in the penthouse, because it was, of course, his master key as a bellhop that was used to access the penthouse, apparently. Oh, well, that's cool. All right. So what about the Rowdy Three? Yeah. What's up with these guys? And of course, the Rowdy Three is composed of four <laughs> thugs. Yeah. And again, we keep seeing all these Vancouver actors. And of course, Dave and I are big fans of the show Continuum that was filmed there. And here we've got Zach Santiago and Michael Eklund, both from Continuum. And of course, Michael Eklund is on Winona Earp as well. So it was great to see them as members of the Rowdy Three, but they seemed to do the only really supernatural thing in this episode, and that was suck some sort of life force out of Dirk Gently with no visible effects, but that was very strange. As soon as they did that, they left Todd's apartment, him unharmed. Right. Weird. So <laughs> Yeah, right. So who are these guys? But he did take, uh, Michael Eklund's character did take a picture of Todd's sister with him. And he's looking at it very closely at the end of the episode. So something bad is going to happen for the sister, I think, unfortunately, with regard to the Rowdy Three. But yeah, all these different pieces, all very crazy. So you'd think you would lose interest or lose focus, but it actually is just a fun, entertaining insanity being unfolded before you. Right. And at the heart of it is time travel or so it would seem. Well, that's and that's just one element, <laughs> the supernatural yeah. aspect, too. What's the deal with the guys with the tattoos? What's going on with the assassin? What's going on with Farrah Black? And Todd puts it nicely because, of course, the character of Dirk Gently, very annoying. I am not your Watson. 
asshole, <laughs> yeah. is what he says at the end. But clearly they are going to have that particular dynamic. So it's really going to be fun to watch this show from the funny entertainment standpoint, but also from the puzzle solving standpoint for those who like those types of shows where you're trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. I, I just hope we see more of his sister, Amanda, as the series progresses, you know, you mentioned she's got that fictional disease, but she just seemed a great character in her own right. But just that dynamic with Todd is not going to go away, right? He's not going to abandon his sister. So then Dirk is going to have to work her into the equation. So we'll see. Yeah. It adds emotional depth to a show that otherwise would be a bit frenetic. So it's nice to have that. Everything's got an anchor. So, yeah, that a great show that's already on episode three. Uh, you can catch up on BBC America's website, and I believe they even have it up on Netflix as well. So a trio of great shows that hopefully you can check out that maybe have escaped your attention since they're not on sci-fi or one of the big networks. So some great stuff. But one show that we've already talked about that we wanted to dig deeper into, especially since Dave writes reviews for Van Helsing, is this show that is now... In its home stretch, and I believe it's episode nine that's airing this week out of 13, correct? That's correct. And we talked to Simon Barry, executive producer for the show, as well as lead actress Kelly Overton just after episode five aired, Fear Her. And it was also just after the announcement that the series had been picked up for a second season. So that was very exciting to speak with these two with that big news being shared. So let's hear from our conversation with Kelly Overton to start out, and we will end with our discussion of Simon Barry after that. The subject of this month's interview segment is Kelly Overton, who made a name for herself in HBO's True Blood as werewolf Ricky Naylor and played Nina Brenner in the criminally short-lived show Legends on TNT. <laughs> she has now taken on one of the strongest female leading roles on television today in sci-fi's Van Helsing where she plays the eponymous Vanessa Helsing. Welcome, Kelly Overton. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. We love your show, and congratulations on the Season 2 renewal. Thank you so much. And what, what was your reaction when you heard this news, and were you able to share it and revel in it with any of your castmates or people on the crew? Yes, um, I was very excited. You know, you never know. You never know these days whether... Um, a network for various reasons, you know, we'll pick up or renew or not renew a show. So it was a mystery. And so it was really wonderful when, when I got the call and heard that indeed they picked it up early. So it just, you know, there's a lot of pride there. Yeah. You know, I, I guess like a lot of genre TV fans, I've been fascinated with the reluctant hero character. And, you know, very often it's somebody that gets thrown into a situation that he or she had no part in creating. But for Vanessa, the stakes are a little bit higher, save the human race from extinction. So to this point, how do you think Vanessa's handled things? <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, not, just a little bit of a responsibility there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no big deal. You know, I feel like she's doing a pretty good job. Um, you know, I think it's it's hard for her to except that what you just said is actually true and a fact. You know, she wakes up and discovers that she has these supernatural powers. She can heal. She's immune to the vampires and can actually change them back into human. Uh, I think it, it takes her a while to process 
that that's actually a real thing that's happening. Um, you know, that she's kind of woken up and been reborn in a sense. So I feel like, you know, she's taken the appropriate time to start accepting. Hopefully she continues to accept um, these powers uh, and the responsibility that she has. And now we really enjoyed uh, seeing her embrace those powers, especially in the latest episode where she dared Julius to take her on. But he sends out her flatmate instead, her neighbor. So right. when Vanessa takes a when she takes a bite out of Susan before they escape, this seems to be kind of like a turning point for Vanessa. So can you speak about her reaction here because she seems so cavalier about it or almost a little bit brazen, but now she has to sort of change tack a little bit. Yeah, I mean Vanessa, when we meet her and we go, when we flash back um, pre-coma, pre-apocalypse, you know, we get a, we get to see a little bit of who she is and um, kind of how protective she is over those she loves. And, and Susan in particular, when Tommy comes out and he's roughed her up a little bit, um, you know, there's, there's this switch that goes off in Vanessa where, you know, she's not going to let somebody get away with that. So I think that switch that she has already innately in her, like, is magnified now that she, you know, has been kind of transformed um, when she awakens from being bit by, by a vampire. Being bit first by a vampire and then in a coma for three years, transforming and then it being completed when she's bit again. So I think that when she's captured and she's surrounded by, you know, all these vampires for the first time, and then sees that someone she loves has been turned. I think that same switch goes off, you know, and she's also a really resourceful person. And, you know, then on top of that, hearing that Susan was responsible for Dylan or might have hurt her also. So it's a, it's a, it's a complicated moment, that like a bunch of switches go off for her. Um, and and as I, I think she really steps into her power in that moment. Well, speaking of complicated, Axel and Vanessa, yeah, obviously the show's leads as well as the lead figures in, in this apocalyptic group, but they've got this relationship that they seem to resent each other for different reasons. So what do you think about the relationship and what does Vanessa think about Axel and his decisions? Because to this point, he's the one that makes the hard decisions that nobody else wants to make. Right. I mean, he's kind of the self prescribed protector over Vanessa, which I think she finds very suspicious at first. You know, she awakens to this whole group of people who want her for one reason or another. And yet there's this one guy who's like, well, I'm, I'm on your side. I'm here to protect you. Um, don't trust that guy. <laughs> you know, that's what she's thinking. Like, what? This is all very suspicious. You know, but then he, he does start to put his money where his mouth is and he does start making some decisions that's like, Hey, I'm with you, you know, whatever happens, I have your back. And so she starts to you know, let him kind of be on her side. But yeah, then, then there's a switch that happens where it's like, it gets a little controlling, you know, it's like Vanessa's not going to be controlled by anybody. So I think right when it really takes that turn, you know, she knows that she's, she's got to pull some moves and, and, and get out of there. It's interesting, too, because Axel kind of showed some of his flaws. What would you say are Vanessa's failings as a, a reluctant hero? Um, you know, it's so often like our best qualities are our worst qualities, right? It's like that flip of the coin. You know, Vanessa, on one hand, can be incredibly loyal and fiercely passionate about those she loves. And also, 
you know, have something to fight for, to hope to hold on to. And, you know, the flip of that coin is there's times where you just, you have to let go. So I think some of her faults might be not knowing when to let go of certain battles. You know, she's really good at fighting them, but I think she's still learning when to let go of them. And she doesn't easily trust people, um, which I don't know if you want to see that as a flaw or not in these circumstances. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, without, I think, that self-control, it can be haphazard and slightly out of control or precarious. So I think her best qualities are also her worst qualities in that way. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of violence in this series. There, no question. And maybe even a, a notch... Not maybe even a notch above True Blood. So, what were some of the most challenging stunts or fight scenes that you had to perform, and any other factors beyond the gore that distinguished your work in the show? You know, there's that scene in Fear Her after you bite Susan, where you're just kind of towering over her, blood dripping down your. You know, it's it's chilling. <laughs> yeah, that was. That was wonderful. That was so fun to shoot. There's there's so many more fight scenes like that. So much more um, blood coming, so much more gore. I mean, if you think it's gory now, like, <laughs> just wait. Yeah, it's pretty, oh boy. pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Kelly, so much for joining us. We are very much enjoying Van Helsing, and good luck on season two. Thank you so much. Hi, Simon. Hey. Hey guys, hello. We're very excited to be talking about another one of your shows today. It's uh, it's been too long. <laughs> <laughs> Could you take us through the process leading up to the Van Helsing pitch, and then its development as a series? And was this something that you were thinking about near the end of Continuum's run? Well, um, the process was actually quite unusual. Uh, unlike most shows that are developed by the writer and then pitched to the broadcaster or studio, this actually was generated from inside sci-fi, and it was involving a pitch document that was circulated internally. And I think at that point they were interested in moving forward and helping before Neil Labute or myself had been approached. They contacted producers Chad Oaks and Mike Fizzler from Nomadic, who produce Helen Wheels and Fargo, and were essentially um, moving forward, I think, with the idea that uh, those guys would be instrumental in bringing on some writers, which ended up becoming Neil and myself. And Neil was brought on first, and I was brought on second. So it was a very sort of different process than I'm used to, where usually the writer's generating the concept, and then you go out and pitch it. In this case, didn't really have to pitch it in the traditional sense. What we did have to do was take the concept that sci-fi had handed Neil and I and the other writers, and we ended up doing what we called a pitch back, where we took their concept that was very loose and broad, and we went back to them with a much more specific take on characters and the setup and how we were going to unfold the first season, because we were entering into a situation that we knew was already ordered to 13 episodes. So we were immediately thinking about not only the short view of what the pilot would be, but also the long view of what the season would be. So that was really the, um, from my point of view at least, was the first inkling of Van Housing was really a phone call I got from uh, the producers, and then uh, I met with Neil, and we uh, decided this would be something fun to do together, and uh, the rest was 
immediate hard work. And a year later, we're, and that was actually 12 months ago, almost to the day today that I uh, first met Neil. Well, one of the things that makes this a very fun concept is the fact that in order for the vampires to come out, you have to have something to blot out the sun. So uh, how did that Yellowstone caldera come up and what did you discover about it in your research and what other possibilities were on the table? Yeah, in the original document we've been handed, which is kind of like a glossy six or seven page outline of what the uh, the, the ideas that were, were in the show would be, they had a similar idea that wasn't really specific to Yellowstone, but they had a concept about atmospheric change that had blotted out the sun that was really allowing the vampires to make their move. You know, once you get into the writing of an episode, you can't really go with these generalities anymore. You have to really dig down into something specific. So we looked at what would be, in essence, something that would have immediate impact on the West Coast of the United States, but not necessarily destroy the West Coast, <laughs> at least where we wanted to shoot the show or set the show, which is Seattle. So uh, Yellowstone was the obvious opportunity because it is sort of this well, the one super volcano that we believed could, at least from our story logic, sustain months and months and years of continuous ash that would allow for you know the vampires to thrive in a in an overcast world and sort of a nuclear winter scenario, if you will. Well, you know, obviously one of the first things you notice is that you guys have moved completely away from the vampires are sexy approach. And, you know, I mean, was that a reaction to the twilight phenomenon? And then did you guys discuss, you and Neil, any possible comparisons you'd have to deal with to The Walking Dead? Yeah, I mean, we were definitely embracing what we felt was more of a post-apocalyptic universe in, in, on all levels, and that the vampires would also be part of that post-apocalyptic effect, that the the natural disaster component would have would have thrown everything into chaos, and that sort of everyone, human and vampire alike, would be essentially living through that disaster, so that it wouldn't allow for kind of the that ver that at least at the twilight reality just wouldn't really fit into our universe because this is a world that's been taught, thrown upside down. And for us, The Walking Dead looms heavily over everything, I think, in a way that's hard to avoid. It's such a mega success. It's such a huge cultural phenomenon that any time you're dealing with uh, a show about survival, every time you deal with a show that involves the idea of post-apocalypse or in any way the tradition of humans versus anything else, it's going to be hard to avoid the, the long shadow that that show costs. And we decided, you know, our goal was to be as entertaining as possible. And if there were overlapping themes and overlapping concepts that that we saw that were already being done in the, in the Walking Dead, we weren't going to shy away from them because at the end of the day, those tropes and those themes are also uh, a great spot to ground drama from. And so, it would, would have been crazy for us to have just constantly dodged any comparison. So we just thought, well, you know what? Let's not worry about it. Let's uh, embrace it and in a way sort of honor what The Walking Dead does well and hold ourselves to a high standard uh, that they set and try and be original in our own way uh, with our characters, our situations, and also our mythology. The one thing that we have that's very different, obviously, our antagonists, our vampires, are actually characters. We, we get to know vampires in a way in our show that the zombies will never be 
part of The Walking Dead because they don't have real consciousness and they don't have communication. So we had a, um, a secondary mythology that we were able to build on that was really about how the vampires were operating their sort of you know internal politics and existential crises and and the rules of, of vampirism as a function of how this war was being waged. And in a way, we really were using analogies from World War II, things like occupation and ideas about the way people are kept in captivity and the way that there's a symbiosis between captives and captors. Things like that became much more, as we developed the stories, we found that we were really leaning on on themes of revolution and war more than we were on survival exclusively. And that sort of helped us at least feel like, even though optically, if you just scratch the surface of Van Helsing, you might be able to say, oh, it's just like The Walking Dead. But that would be a mistake, because as soon as you got into it, you would understand that we were actually doing something very different with our uh, themes and our characters in a way that I think differentiates us. Well, that's true. And, and especially the unique vampire hierarchy that you mentioned isn't present in other takes on this kind of world. So can you tell us what determines if a vampire will be a feeder or a feral or even these higher echelon ones? Is it age or how they're bitten or what? Yeah, so we, in the room, we discussed kind of what we wanted as far as our vampire hierarchy and lore. And we had we came up with three real basic ideas. The first was there were vampires prior to the volcanic event. That these were vampires who were uh, essentially ancient vampires who had been living in hiding in society for decades, possibly hundreds of years. And we had suggested that they were living hand-to-mouth, if you will, trying to stay out of view, trying to keep their existence a secret, and really, you know, sort of these small cells and, you know, analogous to, you know, almost like heroin addicts, you know, that were just trying to survive. And that those vampires would fulfill a role that could be that they were either hundreds of years old, or they were recently turned to serve as soldiers or support. So that was stage one. Stage two was that once we had this cataclysm and the vampires had decided to spread their, their disease, if you will, by biting people and allowing vampires to be created, and therefore you've created essentially a process you can't control anymore. Once you start knowingly making vampires, those vampires will make other vampires. And, and what happens is you get two different kinds of outcomes. You get the ones who, on the one part, you can control to a degree and you let them feed on human blood only and that they will remain cognizant and pure. And then there are those that will be left to their own devices that may feed on animals or may feed on themselves in a way. And that those would become kind of lost and wild animals and in essence become the ferals. So it was really about whether you're part of a control structure or whether you're left to your own devices would determine how feral or non-feral you might be as a vampire. And we liked that that was kind of a evolutionary byproduct of this process. That that on the one hand, vampires themselves, the, the actual higher level vampires were inadvertently creating a problem as well with these ferals that were out there just like wild animals. Okay. And, and I guess the conflict between Dimitri, who who seems to be one of those older vampires from, from what we've been told, and then we don't, we don't really know yet about Rebecca and Julius per se. 
Yeah, we're going to get into the backstory as the show progresses. Yeah. yeah. Well, for me, having spent so much time with Continuum's universe, it's kind of difficult to not see Vanessa's relationship with Axel in a similar light to that of Kira and Carlos. I mean, how difficult is it to have a male and female protagonist that don't end up sleeping together? And is there a battle in the writer's room pitching both sides of the argument? Well, when, you're, when you have all these other concerns and objectives, uh, romance gets pushed to the back anyway. We are so motivated in, in putting our characters in situations where they are in survival mode, when they are in conflict mode, that the opportunity to sort of deliver a long view of romance oftentimes just gets pushed to the back because it's not as interesting in the writer's room as we can make these other things. So show by show, you don't really go into these things unless it's absolutely laid out in the pitch that it is something that is going to be relationship driven. Not that we're completely closed off to it and not that we don't have opportunities for these kinds of connections in the show, which you will see uh, develop. But we never set out to think just because there's a, a boy and a girl in the same room that that has to be uh, an obligation for us to have a relationship that's romantic. It's just just not reality. It's just not the case uh, in the room, and it actually doesn't come up. It's one of those things that we base purely on whether the story of the show is going to be enhanced or not enhanced by these kinds of romantic connections. And then we'll we'll find a way to leverage them in. But we never set out with a, a checklist of things we want to accomplish, like getting two characters to ship. I mean, it just doesn't, that just is uh, not how the room functions, at least in my experience. All right. Well, we've really been enjoying Van Helsing this season, and we're very much looking forward to the finale as this podcast airs. Uh, the finale will be coming up very soon. So, uh, congratulations on season two as well. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, it's wonderful to get renewed before our first season is finished uh, running. So that's a it's a real advantage for us and and gives us a chance to get back in the game sooner than later, which is uh, always I think appreciated by the people who make the show and the people who watch the show. They don't have to wait as long between seasons, which is wonderful. Indeed. Well, thank you very much, Simon, for talking to us today. No problem, guys. Happy to always, and thanks for your continued support. All right, so that was a great pair of people to talk to to get really in depth with the show, and I was really my eyes were opened as to the role of the different types of vampires. Questions that I had been wondering about were answered. <laughs> yes, and and again, we've had the opportunity to talk to Simon Barry before when we were doing Continuum, and it was also interesting to hear how the show actually got developed as well. Yeah, I was not aware of that. So definitely, if you want an interview to shed some light on some of your favorite series, that was a definite one to not miss. So uh, thank you to those folks who spoke to us. But we really had fun with this uh, longer edition, different kind of format for us this month. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in December, we're going to discuss Incorporated on Sci-Fi and The Librarians on TNT. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review, five stars please, this <laughs> podcast wherever you access it, because we'll return the favor. <laughs> we're on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. 
and we take suggestions for future discussion topics, and we will be back with our discussion topic next month. Just email us at scififidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.